Okay, here we are, the, uh, the final session, fourth session. Well done for making it to the end. So if you've got the handout, we're uh, at talk four, the Word and Spirit part two, God and Scripture now. Uh, and by now you'll have, uh, I trust, got the, uh, the message as to why I've called two of these sessions the Word and the Spirit. And having looked at yesterday, Word and Spirit part one, at... Um, the inspiration that is the breathing out of Scripture by God through the Holy Spirit. We're now looking at the work of the Holy Spirit for us now in relation to the Bible. Um, I will be uh, making some time for questions at the, uh, at the end of this. So you'll be thinking about that. You can range more widely than just this one talk. If you've got questions built up from previous talks from earlier or yesterday, that's fine. Um, and I think sometimes some people are a little bit nervous of asking a question in public, maybe thinking, mine's going to be a really dumb question. And everybody will turn around and stare at me and think, who is that fool? If you're nervous, then that's just fine. Um, feel free to write your question down as we go, and at the end I'll say, just pass him forward. And by the time he gets to the front, no one will know whose question it was. And then if it's an intelligent one, you can go, actually, I asked that one, and you'll be fine. Okay. Let's think, uh, section one here, about the Holy Spirit and the meaning of the words of Scripture. Now, to say a slightly silly but true thing, the word meaning is a hard word to define. Many discussions about the meaning of something end up completely meaningless because people can't agree on the meaning of the word meaning. I'll leave that with you. We'll think not much more about that. You'll be glad to know. But it is true. Let me give you what I think is the best definition of the word meaning. And it would be something like this, as I put there on the handout. The meaning of a piece of writing, or some language, is what the author or speaker can legitimately be construed as doing in and through the words they used. Okay? Now... That's a good definition when you've got writing written by human beings who are now dead. Because we can't phone up the Apostle Paul and say, what did you really mean? But we trust that what he really meant is actually set down for us here in these words. And we can get the meaning out of what is put here. Now, we all know that sometimes words fail to convey what you want them to convey. So, uh, you know, you might say something, and someone says, uh, ah, what you mean is this? And you go, no, no, that's not what I meant. And they go, that is what you said. You know, that's not what I meant. Repeat, ad nauseam, in uh, many marital disputes. But we trust, don't we, that with God's word, what has been put down here is what the writers actually wanted to say. They wrote well. They wrote successfully. So uh, when we're reading, it's not that we are, as it were, peering into the psychology of the Apostle Paul or Matthew or anybody else. Just a little aside here. For anybody who's uh, ever done any theological study, the history of biblical studies, um, what became the great trend in biblical, academic biblical studies in the 18th and 19th centuries, which in many ways in universities were still the heirs of, was actually just a great attempt to use the Bible to peer into the religious psychology of the people who wrote the Bible, to try and discover the kind of religious experience they had 
so we could either replicate or avoid that for ourselves, depending on your taste. A complete blind alley, though, uh, in understanding Scripture, because the goal of Scripture is not to peer into the psychology of the Apostle Paul, it's to say, what did he say? Because that is what God is saying. So, any discussion about the meaning of Scripture, it helps to keep it to that. It's what the author can be construed as saying because of the words they used. Now, I want to say some things which are, in fact, blindingly obvious about the meaning of words. But in practice, their blinding obviousness has not always been as decisive as it should have been. So firstly, verbal meaning can't change. Remember, to speak is to act. And an act is what it is. So um, if I have warned someone or insulted them or congratulated them right there in a moment in space and time, that's what I've done. And however long you go on into the future and look back on that event, you can never reinterpret it so that it was something other than what it was. Either I did abuse them or I did congratulate them or I did exhort them. Because it's an act, you can't change what it is. Now, I know, and some of you will know well, that there are whole strands in certain kinds of philosophy, certain academic subjects, where the meaning of words is just taken to be utterly fluid and all we're doing is playing and you can do what you want. But let's be clear that that is just a rather pointless playing uh, that is just, frankly, an aspect of the immaturity of our contemporary Western culture that just loves to play and won't take the world and life really seriously. When someone does what they do, they've done what they've done, and it is what it is, and you can't change it. Verbal meaning can't change. To, to relate that to God, God works consistently through the languages he's given us. It, isn't it wonderful that the words we speak can mean the same tomorrow as they did yesterday? It's an aspect of the faithfulness of God, which he's demonstrated to us in creation. That is why if you made someone a promise yesterday, whether you like it or not, it still stands today. That is why the way God showed himself to be 2,000 years ago and on the moment of creation is how he is now. And what he has given us, including our language, reflects that faithfulness. So as I put there, next point, the, the nature of an action can't be changed. It is what it is. Looking back on it with perspective, you may see new angles on it, you may have a whole new context for it, see the bigger picture that it's set in, but that doesn't change what it is. Now, next uh, little sub-point there. God has identified his meaning and his action with the words of scripture. So, uh, although, of course, in, popularly, you will hear all sorts of people say, well, of course, the meaning of the Bible changes over time. If we're going to be really rigorous and clear with our thinking, we're going to say, no, no, we're not going to have any of that talk. If we define meaning in the particular way that I did at the top of that handout, then let's be clear, the meaning of Scripture uh, isn't going to change. 
because of who God is and because of the nature of the Bible that he's given us and because of how he says he relates that word to himself. Next bullet point. However, although meaning can't change, what I'm going to call its significance does. Now, you see, there's nothing sacrosanct about these terms here, but we need two words just to distinguish this. The meaning can't change, but significance does. So just to give a, a, a very simple example, uh, when in the New Testament it says, greet one another with a holy kiss, in many cultures where the physical act of kissing means something different, there is a, a meaning that remains the same, but the significance of how that is to be worked out will be different in different cultures. So you see, in a sense, I'm not teaching you anything here that you don't know. You, you work with these distinctions all the time. But my point is, at least simply this, if we're going to think rigorously about this and stay on track ourselves and help others to stay on track, we're not going to bandy around words like meaning, you know, here, there and everywhere, making it mean 25 different things and leaving people thinking... Well, hey, the Bible meant something yesterday, but it might mean something different tomorrow. The fact that the meaning can't change is, next bullet point, is God's covenant faithfulness in action. If the meaning of the Bible could be different tomorrow, then God could be different tomorrow. And then we stand not on solid ground, but shifting sand. So, in light of all of that, I just want to think for a minute about um, the phrase that often floats, or the word that often floats around here when people get into this kind of discussion is literally. You know, do you take the Bible literally? Oh no, I don't take it literally. Um, Forgive me if I'm kind of a bit repetitive on some of these things. You may, for what I'm doing, is I'm taking perfectly simple words and saying, actually, they're quite complicated. <laughs> but again, literal is another of those words where um, I reckon quite a good habit. It's perhaps a little bit rude. wouldn't want to use it all the time. But if someone says to you, do you take the Bible literally? Just say, look, I cannot engage with a woolly question like that. Rephrase your question without using the word literal. Now, that's a bit rude, and you probably wouldn't say that. But we have to be on our guard. What does the word literal mean? Because uh, when Jesus tells a parable, which is a deliberately fictional story, if you interpreted it as if it were an account of a real event in history, have you taken it literally? Well, not really, because what you've, what you've actually done is you've got it wrong. You've misinterpreted you might say that was taking, some, taking it literalistically, treating it as if it was reported as a fact when it was never intended to be a fact. Okay? And sometimes when people say taking the Bible literally, what they mean is treating it as all as if it were intended to be reports of facts and events. Much of it is, but not all of it is. So... Let me give you a better phrase, and that is taking God at his word. If we're asking, what should we be doing with the Bible? The answer is taking God at his word. 
So if the Bible presents something as a fact, we've got to take it as a fact. If it presents something as a deliberately fictional story to make a point, don't ask, was this intended to be a real event? Ask, what is the point? And so on. So just as an example, I mean, to give the most contentious example, the first two chapters of Genesis. Um, by the way, let's not have any discussions about the precise intended meaning of those two chapters. But let's be clear. There would be no virtue in taking those to be literal history blow by blow if, in fact, God had not intended them to be such. But equally, if God intends them to be such, then we must take him at his word and take it as that. So um, the decision we come to on... Uh, how much history God intends to teach us in the early chapters of Genesis is not determined by saying in advance, we've got to take the Bible literally. Now, you only work that out by reading those chapters as carefully and prayerfully as you can and deciding what is God intending to teach? What word is he intending to be taken at in those chapters? Now, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit and the meaning of the words of Scripture, I've given you a final bullet point there. This question, will God speak through Scripture outside of its verbal meaning? In a sort of simplistic way, this is about, as it were, taking verses out of context. Let me give you what is my, my favourite example of this. Um, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. And verse 6. Okay, Isaiah 43, verse 6. God says... I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. I, uh, a while ago now, read in a book, a uh, Christian book, a man giving a story, said this is true, anecdote from his own life. Uh, at that point, he was working in the uh, north of England uh, and was considering a job offer that would have taken him south. And he was praying, asking the Lord to guide him. What should he do? And in his own quiet times, he's reading through Isaiah, gets to chapter 43, comes to the beginning of verse 6. I say to the north, give them up. And he found himself thinking, is that the Lord saying that um, I'm free to leave behind my responsibilities in my job in the north? I, you know, I feel that in a sense I'm obliged to stay. But is God saying, no, 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 the people who employ you in the north should release you. You're free to go. Take that job down south. Now, I'm sure I don't have to point out to you that, of course, Isaiah chapter 43 was not authored by the Holy Spirit in order to give that man guidance about his career options. This chapter is written even before the people of God, Israel, went into exile as a promise that even beyond the horrors and the judgment of the exile, God would call his people back and reform them in the place that he had given them. Partly fulfilled after the exile, 
fulfilled in Christ and ultimately fulfilled on the glorious day of the new heavens and the new earth. That's God's intention. But I suspect a large number of Christians would somehow feel that because that man was, as it were, getting guidance from the Bible, that somehow, maybe, maybe that just suggests that God was speaking through those verses. But because of what we've seen about the meaning of Scripture, God's authoring of it, his faithfulness to it, the way he has invested himself in the meaning of these words, what we need to say is, well, it is perfectly possible for God to guide that guy through things he hears to prompt him that he, it would be right for him to move south. But the fact that he read those words in the Bible, because he ripped them right out of context, it's no more likely to be God than if he'd heard um, you know, a traffic report on the radio saying traffic northbound is blocked and southbound is running freely. That's just as likely to be guidance from God as reading it in the Bible, but giving it a meaning that it has never had and could never bear in its context. So will God speak through Scripture outside of its verbal meaning? No. And if he does, it would be in the same category of... I have a feeling that I ought to do whatever. I'm sure you see what I mean. The fact that you find those words in the Bible really counts for nothing if you're giving them a meaning that they have never had and could never have within Scripture. That's the Holy Spirit and the meaning of the words of Scripture. And the big thing I want you to remember from this is it is an aspect of the faithfulness of God. It's not just a bit of literary stuff. It's not being narrow for the sake of being narrow. It is because God is faithful that this is so. Okay, point two. The Holy Spirit and the authority of Scripture. I touched on this, uh, I think, in the talk this morning. But I've given you a couple of fuller quotes here. Uh, The first is from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith which is not as well known in England as it really ought to be, um, uh, written in the 17th century in England, but it's become uh, the primary statement of faith, uh, particularly for Presbyterian churches. And because of uh, various um, events of history, there's not much Presbyterianism in England now. But around the world, particularly the United States and parts of Scotland, this is a very significant document still one of the great articulations of uh, Christian faith from England. And the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellences, and in case they've missed anything out, and the entire perfection thereof. These are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Deep breath. Yet, notwithstanding, 
our full assurance, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth, infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So there are all sorts of things which lead people to see that the Bible is God's word. The witness of other Christians can do it. The reading of scripture for themselves can do it. But that deep conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. And remember I said earlier, the point of that is more to rule out what's wrong than to state exactly what is right. It's to rule out it's not a church authority, it's not a, someone who says they're full of the Holy Spirit, because that would be to put your faith in man. Just aside here on um, evangelism and evangelistic courses, because although this is you know a 350-year-old um, piece of doctrine it does point out something which I think still applies in evangelism. Uh, as in our church, we use the uh, Christianity Explored course. I think that's what's used here in this church. Now, you know, as they say, other courses are available. It's not the only one. It's not the magic bullet. But I tell you why I have come to see it as the one I want to keep using. And that is because it has a strong focus on people reading the Gospel of Mark for themselves as the course goes on. Um, I think I used, when I ran this course, I used to see it that what was happening was they were meeting together, they were watching these brilliant talks by this guy Rico Tice, or even better, listening to me, which actually isn't better. Rico's better. Uh, and uh, we were discussing it together, and uh, Witness and Evangelism was happening there. And uh, just to keep them going through the week, kind of background information so they could see what was going on, they were reading Mark's Gospel. I think I've now come to see it actually works entirely the other way around. As I've seen people being converted uh, through that course, uh, and they talk about what's happened, what's been happening is they've been reading Mark's gospel for themselves and the, the talks and the discussions that we have when we meet give them something of a framework and a pointer so that they can start to see in Mark the big things that are really there that God is really wanting to say. Now, I'm sure for some of you, that's just me catching up with what you already well know, which is the more we can expose people to the word of God and give them a right framework for understanding it, give them insight into a Christian community where they can see it lived out, give that around them, open them up to the word of God, give them some a couple of good questions to ask when they're reading it, help them to put aside what they don't yet understand and focus on what they are getting, then, not in every case, of course, because some people will close their hearts, but people will start to see, I am seeing it, God is talking to me, I'm, I'm getting it. That is simply, in action, what the Westminster Confession of Faith here says. That they start to believe it not because some vicar tells them, but because the Spirit witnesses in their heart that it is so. Uh, another quote on the handout from um, a, a 17th century theologian. You may well not have heard of him, that's okay. He was in Geneva uh, about 100 years after Calvin. Now he says, when the French confession, that's another confession of faith, when it says, 
we believe the books of Scripture to be canonical, not so much by the common consent of the church as by the witness and internal urging of the Holy Spirit. By Holy Spirit must be understood the Spirit speaking both in the word and in the heart. So the same Spirit acting objectively in the word to set forth the truth acts efficiently in the heart to impress the truth on our minds and so is very different from fanatical enthusiasm. You may think that fanatical enthusiasm for the word of God would be a jolly good thing. And it is, but that's not what he means. By fanatical enthusiasm, what he's got in mind is, remember that kind of hyper-charismatic stuff that says, the Holy Spirit is in me more than he's in you, so what I tell you is the word of God. That's the kind of thing he means by that. You see what he's saying? That when someone is encountering scripture, the spirit is everywhere. He wrote the word. He's speaking through the word now, pressing on us the meaning that is eternal because of the action he performed when he was writing it, giving it the significance that it now has for us in our lives. And if he sovereignly chooses to do so, he is opening our hearts so that we can receive that word. Not picking up a kind of magical meaning, but just opening ourselves to the meaning that is just right here and is being pressed on us. All in the context of teachers and other people opening scripture for us. Now, there can sometimes be a worry that all of this is a circular argument. How do I know the Bible is the word of God? Well, the Holy Spirit will tell you. How, how will the Holy Spirit tell you? Well, he'll kind of tell you. See how someone can get kind of tied up in knots in that. If they're reading scripture, it's not making much sense to them. There are many things one could say about that. I think that just the simplest and clearest thing is this. In the end, this is an argument for the ultimate authority of the Bible as the place where God authoritatively speaks. And any argument for an ultimate authority will be circular it will appeal to the ultimate authority. Because if you appeal to something else to back up the authority of this, then that something else sits above the Bible validating it. And that is the one thing we may not have. So, you know, um, I've never failed, I've never succeeded in getting an atheist to acknowledge this. But it's sometimes fun trying. You know, they will say, oh, uh, this or that aspect of Christianity is nonsense because, well, it just makes no sense to me. And you say, well, then um, your reason is your ultimate authority. And they go, yeah. And you say, well, that's irrational. Give, give me a good reason why your reason is the ultimate authority. And they'll just say, well, that just kind of makes sense. And I'll go, that's no good. That's horribly circular. Your reason is the reason why your reason is the authority? I'm not having that. It's fun trying. But simply to make the point, every argument for an ultimate authority is circular. So there is nothing particular for Christians to be embarrassed about here. Next point, the Holy Spirit and the authority of tradition, reason and experience. Largely for different categories of kinds of Christianity. So uh, for Roman Catholicism, It is primarily through the church tradition that the Holy Spirit speaks. For liberal theology, it's primarily through human reason 
that um, the Holy Spirit speaks. For certain kinds of Pentecostalism, it's primarily through experience that the Holy Spirit speaks. But uh, uh, mainstream Protestants wanted to look back particularly to the Reformation and beyond. It is through the Word of God primarily that the Holy Spirit authoritatively speaks. Now, point three. Just want to think a little bit about um, the Holy Spirit and the power of Scripture. And I've given you there on the handout um, sort of a, a, a threefold breakdown, if you like, of coming to grips with Scripture. This isn't for me, it's a, a, it's a traditional one in theology. So I've given you the Latin terms by which these things are traditionally known, but I reckon that slightly more helpful would be an English word rather than a Latin word. Uh, calling them comprehension, conviction, and confident trust. And all three of those are needed for faith. So comprehension is simply knowing and understanding what in fact the Bible says. Now, no particular special work of the Holy Spirit is necessary for that, is it? Because there are plenty of rank unbelievers who know full well what the Bible says, they just will not accept it. Then there is conviction, which is, I know what it says, and I see that it is addressing me. There's a sense in which I squirm slightly because I, I do see that this is about me. I may not like that it's about me, I may be running away, but I do see that it's about me. That is a work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Just impressing this on us. It is tempting sometimes in Christian life and ministry to think that if someone is at that point, that is saving faith. But of course, a third thing is needed, which is, which is confident trust. Confident trust. I know what it says. I see that God is putting his finger on me. But I stop running away and I throw myself on Christ in saving faith. All three of those together are faith. All three of those are at work or should be at work with the Christian approaching scripture. And I think you often see that, don't you? When someone is, is truly converted, what you often discover is that um, as you teach them more and more in the, from the Bible... Not in every case, but often they don't really have any major crises. Oh, I can't believe that. They've learned to trust the God who speaks through Scripture. So what he says is, well, they will just believe it. Perhaps you could sum this up by saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't modify the meaning of Scripture. He ministers it to us. He doesn't modify the meaning. He ministers it to us. Now, put a final thing here. Wanted to give something practical to think about uh, here at the end. If you just look back on all that we've seen in the last couple of days, I think here's a good question to ask. Does the way we engage with the Bible suggest that we really believe that God is actively present by the Holy Spirit in and through the words of Scripture? 
Because we all know how easy it is to say we believe something, but then for our practice, even without us meaning to, to deny it. 